What is God's will for us in the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. It's that we not murder and that we do love our neighbor. Lord's Day 40, in the back of your songbooks, Lord's Day 40, page 891. The commandment, you shall not murder. We read a summary of what the Bible teaches about this commandment, what it means. Lord's Day 40, page 891, in the back of your songbooks. What is God's will for you in the sixth commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, certainly not by actual deeds. And I am not to be party to this in others, rather I am to put away all desire for revenge. I'm not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vengefulness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Let's turn in God's word to Jesus reciting an application of the sixth commandment, page 963 in your pew Bibles, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Page 963, Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. May we love it and may he empower us to live by it. The sixth commandment, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, is you shall not murder. 
The old translation is, thou shalt not kill. And I remember being at a protest with regard to capital punishment in the state capital of Iowa, Des Moines, several years ago, where many held up six commandment signs against the death penalty, against capital punishment, thou shalt not kill. But that's not what that word actually means in the sixth commandment, kill. It's actually a specialized form of the word kill, which means murder. Not all killing is murder. The word really is you shall not kill anyone unlawfully. There are kind times in the Bible when it is allowed to take the life of another human being. One is in justified warfare, which does not include the killing of civilians. Justified warfare. Another is in capital punishment. And a third allowable instance is, is a few cases of self-defense. But the word kill in the sixth commandment refers to all wrongful killing of human beings not allowed by God's law. Murder. The second thing to remember as we go into the meaning of this commandment is that murder refers only to human beings. Now that might be obvious to you, but in our culture, murder has come to be applied to animals. And if you kill and eat an animal, you're committing murder in the eyes of some. But in the Bible, the word refers to people who are in a special category of living being, the only ones created in God's image. So God's calling us here in the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, to love life and to protect life as precious in a homicidal world. To love life and protect life as precious in a homicidal world. True love in a homicidal world. First of all, what does God forbid? Secondly, what does God hate? And thirdly, what does God require of us? What does God forbid in the sixth commandment? Outright physical murder. Jesus quoted the sixth commandment in his teaching you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And he doesn't go on to negate the commandment. He goes on to explain it further and more deeply. Jesus here is affirming the sixth commandment that forbids murder and makes it a crime liable to punishment. In fact, human life is so important and precious in the sight of God that in Genesis 9 verse 6, God says to Noah, if any man sheds the blood of another man, by man shall his blood be shed. If you kill another human being, you should be killed. Why? God gives the reason to Noah. For in the image of God, he made man. Because man is God's image. Animals aren't. Not even angels are. Only man is God's image. What does that mean to be God's image? Something very precious. That you're made to resemble him. You're made to be his covenant creature. To walk and talk with him. You were created to be his special friend in a way no angel or animal can be. You're made to be a co-worker in his kingdom. Wow. 
God puts a premium on human life because man is made in God's image. It's very special. So what happened to make us a homicidal society, a murdering society? Think of all the sides in our homicidal society. Patricide, killing fathers. Matricide, killing mothers. Fratricide, killing siblings. Regicide, killing kings and governing officials. Genocide, trying to wipe out an entire people group. Feticide, killing fetuses or unborn babies. About five million babies in Canada since 1970. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of homicide. In fact, the state has become the number one murderer in our modern world. In the 1900s, the state murdered about one Or in the 1800s, I should say, the state murdered about 3.5 million people globally. In the 1900s, that number jumped up to nearly 150 million people murdered by the state. That is, murdered in pogroms by persecution, revolution, and genocide. 150 million lives snuffed out violently, brutally in the last century. No age has killed as much as ours, not only in terms of numbers, but in terms of percentages, not even close. And no religion has killed more people than atheism. Think about that. And that does not include the number of abortions, which has jumped astronomically around the world since the 1960s. The World Health Organization estimates roughly 73 million induced abortions occur worldwide each year. That's a lot of blood. 73 million each year. We live in a world that has gone homicidal. And what high crimes, brothers and sisters, we've committed against both man and God, for man is the chief of God's works. It's above all a crime against God when we murder. Man is the last and best works of his creation in Genesis 1. You hold a little baby who looks like he's just looking out and seeing nothing. But that baby's brain is processing everything in a way that is a million times more complicated than any computer. And that baby's eyes have enough going on in them to stop the switchboard of New York City. And that little baby's ears are so finely tuned that one day she will make beautiful music. Imagine. That person is not just a body, but a body and a never-dying soul, a life made in the the image of God, created to do great things by the grace of God. Precious and dignity of human life, God's chief work. Do we appreciate that? That's not just true of the tiny baby, but of the teenager. 
and the middle-aged and the senior. Because your social class, brothers and sisters, doesn't determine your value. Nor does your age or education or race determine your value. Your health, your talents do not determine your value. But that God gave you your life made in the image of God, that determines your value. Even if you're in a permanent vegetative state, you're God's image. And that's what makes that other side of homicide so wrong, suicide. Almost no family is untouched by suicide. Yes, it's a forgivable sin through Jesus who gave up his life for us, but it's a violent sin against the image of God, people of God. It's a violent sin, violent sin against God, against self, and against those left behind made in God's image. And that we as a society encourage distressed people to take their own lives through the brutality of something we sweetly name medical assistance in dying, made. What a travesty. We're guilty of massive sin. And you take somebody distressed and hurting And you add a tool to their toolbox that they should consider using. Assisted suicide. What a terrible thing to do to your neighbor. We live in a homicidal world. And we glory in it. We glory in violence. In the 1960s, Norman Mailer wrote that violence is a noble thing for human beings. Because if you turn your, your rage inward, that will stifle your creativity. You have to let it out in brutality. Then you'll bring about positive changes in society. Violence, he said, is creative and beneficial. And that has become the mantra of both fascist and leftist mobs that want to create a better world through killing. We glory in violence even. Oh, may God have mercy on us. Our world needs Jesus Christ who was murdered on a cross in order to save murderers like us. He was destroyed by violence in order to save the violent like you and me. Just think about that. We say we live in a homicidal world and then we read God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God so loved this homicidal world, we could add, that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What love? It's the only cure for murderers. There is hope. For the homicidal. Secondly, we look at what God hates. We see what God forbids, the outright act of physical murder. But we also look at what God hates. He hates not only the outside act of murder, but the inside heart that produced that murder. He hates the root of murder. The sinful human mind, the 
heart of darkness. When Jesus came into this world in our human nature, he stepped into a world of Pharisees who viewed sin externally. If you don't pull the trigger on someone, if you don't bludgeon someone to death with an ax, you are not a murderer. You're innocent. You never murdered anyone. That was the view of the culture into, in which he lived. And that's what he's addressing here in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe you haven't murdered anybody with your hands, but what about with your mouth? By insulting him, Jesus said, with the name Raka, you empty head. That's what that means. Or with the title fool. Or by holding a grudge and not clearing things up with someone who's got something against you. We can be murderous with our mouths, brothers and sisters, can't we? A harsh tongue that makes fun of and degrades my husband or my wife. How easily we do that. A sarcastic tongue that cuts people down by putting them down? Or an angry, malicious tongue that tries to destroy people by gossip or by yelling, raging at them? Murder. So what Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, but I say to you, that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoever insults is whoever says raka. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Have you ever thought that a life of insulting and degrading and name-calling and angrily lashing out will lead you to hell? That's what Jesus said. You're murdering. That murderer, liar and murderer Satan, has poisoned us. We shouldn't let Jesus' words escape us. You see, our culture is homicidal because our hearts are homicidal. Instead of being fueled by love, we're often fueled by anger in which we murder our neighbor in our hearts. We want to have nothing to do with that person. We avoid them at all costs because of something we remember from the past. Maybe they confronted us about something we did and we got offended and now we'll never talk to them again. That's murder. If we do not confess that and repent of that congregation, we'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to quote, fairly lengthy quote here from Kevin DeYoung. Anger is one of those respectable sins. 
It doesn't seem like a big deal. Granted, not all anger is sin. Think of Jesus in the temple. And Paul says it's possible to be angry and not sin in Ephesians 4. But honestly, that doesn't describe most of our anger, does it? Sinful anger is directed at the wrong person or motivated by the wrong reason or blown way out of proportion. And we take our rage out on other people and get angry for less than noble reasons. We blow up over minor hurts and little inconveniences. We are bombs waiting to burst. We get grumpy with checkout clerks, angry at the person who drives too slow, and snap at tech support over the phone. We hold grudges against our spouse and spew venom when the ump doesn't make the calls we think he should make in the ball game. We wish the worst on our enemies and cherish thoughts of sweet revenge toward those who hurt us. We have an anger problem. And Kevin DeYoung adds, I'm all for passion and righteous indignation. I want people who hate injustice and despise falsehood, but I don't want a church full of mean, angry people who are looking for ways to get rid of their enemies and who don't know what it means to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. I don't want to be in a church full of people who don't crave compassion, who don't crave kindness, patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. It's the end of the quote. Be angry, says Paul, when it's right to be angry, but do not sin. He says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. We often say that means don't go to bed angry, and in many instances, that's how it should work. But it's more a figurative expression that means don't let your anger remain long-term and become a pill of resentment and bitterness that gets into your heart. That's the devil's playground to make your heart dark, brutal, and homicidal, to make you a murderer. No, says Jesus. I want your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees, he says in verse 20, just before where we started to read. I want your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were viewed as super righteous. So this is a shocking statement for the disciples to hear. I want your righteous to be way higher than the righteousness of the Pharisees because they weren't actually super righteous. They were superficially righteous. They were righteous in appearance only. Well, Jesus says, I want you to be righteous on the inside. I want you to cleanse your heart and mind of murder. Hatred and anger are surprising sins. They surprise me. I just got to thinking I was a nice guy and then suddenly this thought, suddenly this word Where did that come from? It comes from a heart that harbors hatred and has the poison of murder living in it. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder of how much we need the Lord Jesus. I do. You do. We need him both to forgive our iniquity, but also to give us a new heart a new power to love, to put hatred and ungodly anger away.
and then to cleanse our hearts daily. So we can constantly be putting away sinful anger and loving our neighbor as we ought. We need the Lord Jesus. And he has given himself to us for our salvation, the salvation of the murderer. Of course, it takes love or wisdom to love our neighbor the right way that pleases the Lord. It might actually mean witnessing the truth against your neighbor in a court of law out of love for the criminal and out of love for that, the society in which you live, for the protection of our society. Or it might mean that you have to be careful to keep some wise distance from someone who has harmed you to prevent the same thing from happening again. Or it might mean that you go and confront your brother, your sister of sin. And it might not always be taken as love, but the truth spoken in love is always an act of love. And that's the heart Jesus calls for. One that gets rid of the bitternesses and the insults and, and the malice and the rakas and does everything out of love. We're like the pet python owned by a lady in the U.S. I just heard this story last week, a true story. She had this python from the time it was a baby and it was a household pet. And they got along, the lady and the python, really well. The python even slept in her bed at night. But one day, her green friend just stopped eating. Just wouldn't eat. And she became quite worried that it was sick. And it no longer curled up in her bed, but laid straight out beside her. About her length. Still didn't eat, and after a while she decided to take her python to the exotic pet vet. The doctor informed her, your snake is sizing you up because he's planning to eat you. You better get rid of him before you become his supper. Well, that describes fallen human nature. We can be friendly on the outside. Be the nicest guy to hang out with. But deep inside, there's a vicious nature that's ready to strangle and destroy others. And we have to get rid of it. Paul said that to the Galatians. These are believers. Through love, he says, Galatians 5, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Even as Christians, that old snake still lives inside us and can strike when we don't expect it. We need the gospel. We need the Lord Jesus Christ who had no snake in him at all. But loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loved his neighbor as himself, even his enemies. And came to crush the serpent. And if you take your life to the Lord Jesus with all the murder that still lives in you. And say, crush him from me. Forgive me for the things that I can say and think 
and crush that python that wants to strangle my neighbor. So that I can live the life that God requires, we see thirdly, the life of loving my neighbor. It's not enough not to murder your neighbor. You must love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in that one word. The sixth commandment too. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Jesus warns us against murder. He warns us against anger and insults. But when you read his explanation of the sixth commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes one giant step further than speaking against anger and insults. One giant step further in proclaiming the righteousness of the law when he says, go and be reconciled to your neighbor. If you're on your way to the altar and you're offering your gift, you've gone through the the court of the Gentiles, you've gone through the court of the Jewish women, you've gone then through the court of the Jewish men, and now you're in the court of the priests, and you've got your head on the sacrifice, and the priest is about ready to kill it, and suddenly you think, oh, I've got an issue with somebody that's not solved. Say to the priest, I'll be back. You've gone through all the, I'll be back. That's how crucial and vital it is to go right now. And he says, settle matters quickly. Be reconciled to your neighbor. His, part is, his point is, as far as is possible with you, live at peace with all men, Romans 12. And blessed are the peacemakers. Is it enough then that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, says the catechism, God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. In Exodus, God said to Israel, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, Kill the sucker. No, no. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, take it, tie a rope around it, bring it back to your neighbor. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving the donkey lying down crushed by the burden. You shall rescue it. This is the command of the Lord Jesus Christ for our lives. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Love is such an important and powerful testimony to God the Father, Jesus said, and to God the Son, who loved even his enemies. It's really the power of the gospel. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's a whole new way. 
To be my follower means that we crush the serpent, the murderer. I will crush him so that you can crush him in my name. And that a new culture start up in you, a culture of loving your neighbor. Looking for ways to reach out to your enemies, looking for ways to help those around you. How often, walking through the hallway at school, or walking through the church building here, or walking down the street, we pay zero attention to others except for that particular one we have eyes for that we know or that we like. And Jesus is saying, go the extra mile. Everybody matters. Everybody matters because human life is created in the image of God. I made human life and I sent my son to redeem human life and I want you to testify for God's sake, to the value of human life in the way that you hate murder and love your neighbor. May God grant that to each of us in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you sent your son to crush that python that loves to murder that is sizing up others to have them for lunch, that we might gain the upper hand. We pray that you will crush the serpent in us so that we might instead be a people that love our neighbor, even our enemies, that we be peaceful, gentle, friendly, and kind to all. Give us wisdom to know how to do that, especially in difficult circumstances, yet to do that. Oh, help us, Lord, forgive our murderous thoughts and hearts, words and actions, and create a culture of the love of Christ in each one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.